weekend, we're also going to read from uh, Mark chapter 7. So if you want to get those two openings, you can be ready when we get there. Matthew 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. So apparently they've tried to get rid of her and can't. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered not, I'm sorry, but he answered and said, It is not meet or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now Mark chapter 7. Here's Mark's account of the same occurrence, the same event. Beginning in verse 24. and And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For, or because, here's what blew his cover. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of his daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the crumbs of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. Now there are a couple of uh, variations, minor details, that um, Mark 7 brings out that Matthew 15 does not. And there's one thing that Matthew 15 brings out that Mark 7 doesn't. Mark 7 leaves out the part where Jesus answered her not a word. And then uh, Matthew tells us that she came and worshipped him. Another thing that's, um, that's interesting about this to me is that this woman was identified as great faith. There's only two times in Jesus' ministry where he came across somebody and identified their faith as great faith. And both of those were outside of the boundaries of Israel. I don't mean the geographic boundaries, but I mean neither of the two people that Jesus credited for great faith was a descendant of Abraham. One place over in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus remarked at the centurion's faith. And he said, I've not found this kind of faith, no, not in Israel. It implies, you judge this for yourself, but it implies to me that he was looking for or expecting that kind of faith among the children of Abraham, but he never found it. Now, the one thing I like about this, uh, well, there's a lot of things I like about this, but one of the main things that jumps out at me about this story is how that the woman would not be talked out of her daughter's deliverance. Contrast that with the people nowadays in the modern-day church, modern-day Christians, who allow the least little thing, whether it's a symptom, whether it's a pain in their body, whether it's a church doctrine, or whatever it might be, they allow so many things to talk them out of the truth of the Word. They allow so many things to talk them out of taking the Word personally. Now, I hope you understand what I mean by that, uh, that phrase. 
The Bible will never do you any good unless you take it personally. There's no such thing as generic faith for God to do whatever he wants to do. It has to be taken hold of individually. It has to be received purposefully, individually, for it to bring about the results that God says that it will bring. And that's what this woman did. She built her case on his word. Now, I want you to notice something. She does not come to him talking about the law of Moses. She does not come to him saying, I know about Isaiah's prophecy about you. Or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of the others. She's outside of the descendants or the lineage of Abraham. She makes no bones about that. But even though Jesus explains, Mark 7 brings out a little bit better explanation than Matthew 15 does. In Matthew 15, it says it's not right or appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now, folks, a lot of people get up in arms about racism in the church today. You want to find a racist group of people. The ones that Jesus ministered to, the ones that became the church. And this idea or concept about Gentiles being the children of God and everybody else being dogs. I'm sorry, Jews being the children of God or the people of God. And everybody else in the Gentile world is being dogs. That continued for decades. Decades after people were born again. Decades after the church began. And here Jesus is simply saying, I'm sent first to Israel. And the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. That's who the blessing belongs to. The blessing of Abraham belongs to his descendants. But she didn't even take that as uh, a good reason to not have her daughter delivered she kept going even beyond that and now what does this tell us we know that she got what she came for we know that her daughter was delivered from the very hour that Jesus spoke the word how did she get those results how did she get that kind of results see folks if people in Jesus day could have great faith how much more should we have with a greater knowledge of the word than she had Now, there's not a lot that we know that she believed. We do see her calling Jesus the son of David, calling for mercy, have mercy on me, thou son of David. That phrase, son of David, is always a messianic term. Otherwise, there's no benefit to being a son of David. David was a descendant of Abraham. The blessing belongs to the children of Abraham, not the children of David. So when somebody identifies Jesus as the son of David, they're referring back to the prophecy. And it's well known. It's not just well known among the Jews. It was well known among the people of Canaan. And the prophecy very simply was that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. So anytime you see somebody in Jesus' ministry identifying him as the son of David, they're simply saying, I know you're the Messiah. Well, how did she know? How did she know? We don't know of anything about the woman except that she heard that Jesus was in that area. And Jesus wasn't in that area to minister. Mark 7 brings out very clearly that Jesus was trying to give his disciples and his followers a break, which we all need from time to time. But she found out about it. And she blew his cover big time. After the woman got what she wanted, she must have published it so widely that Jesus wasn't able to stay, in, uh, stay hidden any longer in the place that he was. So here's a woman that builds her case on the word. Jesus 
first didn't answer at all. And so what does she do? She falls down before him and worships him. Then he says to her, it's not right, it's not appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Let me take a little side journey on this. Jesus is very simply saying that healing and deliverance belongs to the descendants of Abraham. Do you remember what Galatians 3.13 and 14 says? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Talking about Jesus going to the cross. And verse 14 tells us why. Verse 13 tells us we're redeemed from the curse of the law. Deuteronomy 28 very clearly identifies that every sickness and every disease is a part of that curse. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Specifically, Christ has redeemed us from spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. Verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3 tells us why. So that the blessing of Abraham, so that the blessing of Abraham, so that the blessing of Abraham That's what Jesus says she doesn't have. So that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Mark 7 brings out that Jesus is saying, I'm first sent to Israel and after that to the Gentile world. But Matthew 15 doesn't even bring that out. He just says, I'm not sent but unto. The only ones I'm sent to, the only ones I'm designated to heal and deliver are the children of Abraham. And Jesus seems to imply that that's a reason why she shouldn't expect it for herself. But she even keeps that, refuses that to be an answer that she's willing to accept. So healing is a part of the blessing of Abraham. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 therefore tell us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we can be healed. Now her faith is different from our faith. I don't mean it's different in the way it's expressed. I'm not saying it's different in strength. But her faith is different from our faith in this manner. She needed Jesus to do something for her daughter to be delivered. We look back at what Jesus has already done. She's trying, and that's the reason why she's so tenacious. She's trying to get Jesus to minister healing to her daughter. She didn't bring her daughter. What is she looking for? Is she looking for Jesus to follow her back to her home? She makes no request of that whatsoever. That would be something that would be outside the the bounds of uh, society's mores. For him to go into a Gentile's house wouldn't be appropriate. He did that for, uh, or he offered to do that in Matthew chapter 8 for the centurion. But the Bible clearly tells us that the centurion had helped the Jews build a sanctuary in the town. You remember under the old covenant, God said to Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So the centurion is worthy. And and, uh, one of the accounts, one of the gospel accounts brings it out that this centurion is worthy of any good thing that Jesus could do for him because he had been so good to the children of Israel in that town. Specifically, he had built them a sanctuary, a synagogue. So Jesus is saying, very clearly, very specifically, that healing and or deliverance is a part of what belongs to the blessing of Abraham or is a part of the blessing of Abraham that belongs to the Jews. But he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from sickness, spiritual death, and poverty so that we, as Gentiles, could take hold of the blessing of Abraham 
Not only that, but the Bible says in, in uh, Hebrews 8, 6 that we've got a better covenant established upon better promises. But she has to believe. The only thing that she's after, the only thing she's trying to accomplish, this is where her faith is, that the Messiah, whatever she's heard about Jesus has convinced her, and I, I would guess that would be the healings and the miracles. It's convinced her that he has to be the Messiah. Now, what is the Messiah or what good is the Messiah to her? We don't know that he has any benefit to her or she has any expectation of any benefit to her outside of getting deliverance for her daughter. That may be as far as it goes. That may be as far as she expected. But we don't have to believe for God to do something. And this is so important because of the people nowadays, people in our present day that are looking for God to do something to affect their healing are looking in the wrong direction. And they've got their hope misplaced. God has nothing left to do to bring healing to you and me. Now, that's not to say the power of God won't be ministered in different ways, sometimes stronger, sometimes less. Because there's all kinds of variations of the way that healing is ministered and the anointing or the power of God that, that ministers that healing or that deliverance. There's all kinds of ways that we know that the Bible identifies that Jesus ministered. But in her case, all she needs is for him to minister healing or deliverance to, in some way, his choice, not hers. Some way, somehow. And he did that by the spoken word. He said, daughter, how great is your faith? Your daughter is made whole from this hour. And, and she was. But we've got a more sure account. We have greater knowledge of what God has already done. And still, with greater knowledge, with the work already having been completed, Matthew 8, 17, 16, 17, says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. That wasn't true for her. That wasn't true for her daughter. But with perfect knowledge, or more perfect knowledge. Maybe that's a better way to say it. With more perfect knowledge of what Jesus has done. What's already been accomplished and what belongs to the church because of what he's done. Look at how many people allow the devil to talk them out of it belonging to them. Jesus has simply told this woman that it doesn't belong to you yet. And she wouldn't let that stop her. She didn't refer back to the law of Moses. She didn't go to the place where it talks about, yeah, but the Bible says, the Old Testament says, that the Gentiles shall trust in your name too. She didn't try to build her case on any of that. We don't have any, any way to know or to imagine that she would have even known those things. The disciples certainly didn't. We don't know that she was any more learned or educated than they were. It would be very uncommon for a woman to have even as much education as the disciples had, which wasn't much. You remember in Acts chapter 3 when they stood before the council, the Jewish council, same group that crucified Jesus just a couple of months before. They took knowledge of the disciples, Peter and John, that they were ignorant and unlearned men. That didn't mean they were stupid. It didn't mean they didn't have walking around sense. Although some of the stories about Peter make you wonder. It just simply means they, that they had no formal education or training like the Jews on the council had. But they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. 
Folks, there's something about being with Jesus that changes you. There's something about being with Jesus that makes everything different. And this woman is tapping into that. She refuses to be denied. So even after Jesus says, well, healing and deliverance are right, healing and deliverance are from God, and that's the the basis or the reason why she believes in him as the Messiah, to whatever degree that was. She won't let Jesus saying it's not your time keep her from pursuing the best for her daughter. And instead of rebuking her, instead of Jesus finally saying, look, God doesn't like you. She stuck with what he said. She didn't try to change what he said. She had enough confidence that a God that would put healing and miracle power and delivering power upon Jesus for the benefit of the Jews could very, very easily help her too. She had to believe in the character and the nature and the mercy of God that would transcend the lines or the boundaries that Jesus said he was held by to minister. And Jesus, instead of rebuking her, Jesus, instead of putting her down or condemning her, Jesus said, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. I like how Mark says it. It says, Jesus said, for this sake, about the dogs eating the crumbs that fall from the master's table. For this saying, your daughter is made whole. For this saying. What things do we allow ourselves to be talked out of? The devil's always trying to talk us out of it. The devil's always trying to get us to turn loose of what faith we've exercised or to keep us from exercising our faith in the word. We've got whole sections, denominations in the modern day church that preach and teach and have preached and taught for years, hundreds of years, that healing's been done away with. But how can something be done away with that Jesus paid the price for? We have the ability to look back at what Jesus did. We have the ability both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to understand that when Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, that simply means that he shed blood specifically for the purpose of paying the price for sickness and disease. To bear sickness and disease for us so that we need not bear it ourselves. See, Jesus paid for sickness and disease the same way or with the same price that he paid the price for sin. And that was his blood. Blood was shed for you to avoid or overcome sickness and disease in your body. The blood of Jesus was shed specifically, and the Bible is very specific about this. It talks about the price that he paid for sin being his own precious blood. And the Bible very specifically identifies Old Testament and New Testament. In the mouths of many witnesses, it confirms that Jesus shed blood when he was beaten in Pilate's court. And the shedding of that blood, the stripes that he took upon his back, specifically paid the price for sickness and disease. Specifically paid the price for sickness and disease. Then how could anybody be talked out of that? Folks, that's a surety. I mean, you've got to either take the Bible and make it a lie, accept it as a lie, or 
you have to accept the fact that Jesus really did what the Bible says that he did. And the price for sickness and disease has been paid for. Now one thing about this woman, after she comes, and I don't think she's been working on her faith. I don't think she's been trying to grow her faith or develop her faith. I believe that it's just a simple faith, a simple belief on her part that God is a healing God and Jesus was sent to heal the sick. I don't know that it went any further than that in any respect. We certainly don't have evidence that it did. And the fact that she's accepted that God is a healing God and sent Jesus to the earth to save his people. He's been sent to the earth to do signs and wonders and miracles so that people would believe that God was with him. So people would believe that God was in him doing the works so that people would believe that he is the son of his father. We don't know how much of that she believed. We don't know if her belief went any further than that. It may just have been simple enough, and I I like to think that it is. But it may have just been simple enough where she said and reasoned within herself. And she had to come to this place on her own. Where she reasoned within herself that said, and came up with the understanding, concluded for herself that God is a healing God and Jesus was sent to minister that healing in the earth. And that and only that was enough for her to stand her ground with Jesus, the Son of God, the one that she's proclaiming is the Son of God. She stood face to face with Jesus and would not be denied. Now, folks, when you say things like that, some people get the idea that they're talking about or we're talking about or suggesting that people would be arrogant in the face of God. And I think that'd just be foolish. But there's a big difference in being arrogant And refusing to have less than what God provided. See, if God provided these things, if healing has been paid for or sickness has been paid for and healing has been obtained by Jesus, which the Bible specifically says it has. If those things are true, then why would God be your opposition to receive them? Would he be opposed to you having what Jesus paid for? The only reason Jesus paid for him is because it was his plan, God's plan. So everything that Jesus accomplished has to be the will of God for you and I to have. Now, again, people go through mental gymnastics. Turn with me over to Isaiah 53. Rather than quoting some of this stuff, it'd probably be a good idea to to have it there in front of you. In Isaiah chapter 53... And you can study this out if you want to. Everybody accepts that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is the messianic chapter. Everything about the 53rd chapter is talking about what the Messiah would do. We know the Messiah is Jesus. Everybody understands that the things that are spoken of in Isaiah 53 are the things that Jesus would accomplish according to God's plan of redemption for you and me. Let's start in verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I want you to understand something, folks. Right out of the gate, Isaiah is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and says not everybody's going to receive. To whom the arm of the Lord will be revealed is identified by who believes the report. 
He's saying it takes faith in the report. Faith in what the word is going to reveal to us. In this 53rd chapter of Isaiah and throughout the whole word of God. Isaiah is saying it's going to take faith for the arm of the Lord or the power of God. To affect these things that you're going to read about. These things that are reported. To affect a change in you. Spiritually and physically. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word sorrows and grief literally means sicknesses and pains. And I, I, I appreciate so much what the translators did in giving us the King James translation. But there's a couple of places, and this is one of them, where the translators just were not honest. Now, I don't think, I don't, I'm not saying they tried to be dishonest. But they took words that were translated sickness and disease and pains and infirmities in other places and came up with the notion or the idea that Jesus redeemed us from sickness, from sorrows and griefs, which really don't mean anything. If we were left with the Bible alone without any way to check it out and do our own study, saying that Jesus redeemed us from sickness, from sorrows and griefs, not sickness, but from sorrows and griefs, what are we supposed to believe from that? And it's things like this that have kept a lot of the church ignorant. But with the advance of technology, so that even those of us who don't know much about language, and I'm certainly in that category, where we can study out and we can read it ourselves and find other places where the words are translated sickness and pains. So here it is. It says he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, pains, and acquainted with grief, sickness. Notice it talks about his connection with sickness and disease. Well, we know that he was certainly connected with sickness and disease throughout his earthly ministry. His three years of earthly ministry, he healed and, and set people free right and left. That doesn't mean that everybody that was sick in Jesus' day was healed. You remember, for example, in John chapter 5, where the man at the pool of Bethesda was healed from whatever crippling condition he had. And the Bible doesn't tell us that anybody else there was healed when Jesus went through that place. And some people will use that and say, and again, this is part of the devil trying to, trying to talk people out of what belongs to him. Some people will look at that and say, well, see, even Jesus didn't heal everybody. That's not the important point. The important point is that Jesus never turned anybody away that came for healing. He never turned away anybody that believed in the report. And the arm of the Lord, the power of God was revealed unto everybody that came to it. In some situations, some instances, he had to tweak their faith a little bit. He had to get them believing in places or, or, or in things that they didn't believe before. But he never turned anybody away and he never left anybody hanging. He never tried to influence somebody's faith toward receiving healing and seeing that they wouldn't do what he was instructing them to do, he never once said, well, I guess you'll just have to keep this then. He kept helping people's faith until they received. Why would it be any different for you and me? 
One of the things that the Holy Ghost has really dealt with me about in the last several years is where Jesus talked about what the Spirit of God would do in John 14, 15, and 16. One of the things that says that the Holy Ghost would guide us into all reality. That word reality is the word truth. He'll guide us all into all truth. And I began several years ago asking the Holy Ghost to guide me into the truth of certain areas. Guide me into the truth of healing. Guide me into the truth of, of the peace of God. Different things. I don't want to share the things that I have been confessing. But when I started asking God, specifically expecting the Holy Ghost to guide me into certain things, reading the words taking on a new meaning for me. Don't get me wrong, I read it a lot before. But now it's different. Because I'm expecting him to be my guide. I'm expecting him to guide me into the truth of areas that I don't know. Into the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us. So again, he's despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, sicknesses, and carried our pains. Again, those words, griefs and sorrows, mean sickness and pain. Surely. It's the only time you find the word surely in the whole chapter. Surely. And the declaration that's made surely is one of healing. Surely he hath borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, people that were standing by when these things were taking place didn't understand at the time what was being done. They didn't understand Jesus was paying the price for everybody. Verse 5, what price did he pay? He was wounded for our transgressions. What does the word wounded mean? It means wounded. What's significant about wounds? The shedding of blood. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The difference between transgressions and iniquities here means both personal sin and the original sin of Adam. That loose sickness and disease upon the world that bound mankind unto spiritual death. Jesus paid that price along with the individual sins, the price for individual sins for every one of us and everyone that comes to him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now the word peace there is the Hebrew word shalom, and it means well-being in every area. But the church doesn't fight over that so much. Because they accept peace to just mean comfort, quiet, stillness, steadiness, and other such words to describe what we think peace is. So here you've got the modern day church that will say Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him so that now we can have the peace of God. But healing doesn't belong to everybody. How can you take one part, really one-fourth, of Isaiah 53, 5 and say that part doesn't apply today? It's the same scripture that says Jesus paid the price for sin. It's the same scripture that tells us Jesus was our substitute and the shedding of his blood, putting together other 
scriptures with this, through the shedding of his blood, we were made righteous. The price for sin was paid. How can you take healing out of that scripture? It's impossible. Now, there's two things about this that come to my mind, and that is, first and foremost, healing. Or Jesus paying the price with his own blood for sickness and disease is every bit as uh, every bit as much a part of the redemptive work that he did as paying the price through his shed blood for sin. Every bit the same. It's not like unto it. It's not a step down from it. It's a parallel track. It's the same price for the same payment. The same sacrifice. The same substitute. But the same spiritual bondage of death. How can people think that's a side case or a sideline? See, some people will say, and some people will accept, well, yeah, God does heal. You can't be too intelligent and not recognize that. Even the simplest of folks have to recognize that God sometimes heals. But their opinion is, or their, their position is, but you never know what he might do. Well, that's like saying you never know if somebody will get saved if they come give their lives to Jesus. That's like saying, and that would be the same thing as preaching. Jesus paid the price for you, but you might not get it. Come to the altar and give your heart to the Lord and we'll see what happens. Nobody would preach that because nobody can get results like that. You can't let people have doubt about whether or not they're going to be saved and get them saved. Well, then why does the church try to place so much doubt in the minds of the believers for whom the price for sickness and disease was paid? Jesus commended the Syrophoenician woman because she wouldn't have accepted any of these arguments. Why should we? He was, bruised for, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so that he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. This is talking about the price he paid in the lower part of the earth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. You notice that phrase, he was cut off out of the land of the living? That's a priestly term that always applies to the scapegoat. Now on the day of atonement... Most everybody focuses on the fact that there was a lamb that was slain and the blood was applied to the altar and taken into the holy of holies, the, the, the very holiest place in the temple or in the tabernacle before the temple was built. And everybody knows about the blood that was shed from the animal to cover the sins of Israel for one year. But if you go back and you look at what God commanded about the Day of Atonement and how things should operate, there were two animals both equally without spot or blemish that were picked from among the herds. And lots were cast between those two. And depending on which, the lot, which one the lot fell on became the sacrifice and the other became the scapegoat. Now the scapegoat 
had just as much ritual in the, the uh, uh, well, the ritual of the scapegoat and what it was supposed to signify and how it was supposed to operate was given every bit of detail that the sacrificial lamb was given. And it tells us that the priest, the high priest, is representative of all the people of Israel before God, how that he would lay his hands on the, the head of this goat or ram, whatever it was, and he would pronounce all the sins that Israel might have committed. There were huge lists of sins that were pronounced over this thing. And the Jews got so tedious and, and strained at a gnat, so to speak, about this thing. That it was a many-hour event where these curses and these sins were figuratively laid on this scapegoat. And after the scapegoat finished the, the, the cursing part of the program, then it was carried out into the wilderness and left where the judgment of God could fall on it. Whether they were eaten up by wild animals or died some other way, maybe from starvation or whatever it was, the very fact that it was taken out into the wilderness and cut off from the land of the living, that's where this phrase comes from, cut off from the land of the living, shows that a part of the work that Jesus accomplished was the price that he paid in hell, the torments that he suffered in hell. And that was the land of the living that he was cut off from. So back to verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. The word death is in the plural. King James doesn't show it that way, but if you go look it up in the original Hebrew, it's a plural. The word is in the plural. Now, what does that mean? That means there was more than one death that he died. Well, we know of one death that he died. It's easy for us to see, and that was physical death. He physically died on the cross. Well, what other death could he die? Spiritual death. Now, what does spiritual death mean? Spiritual death means that we're separated from God. So here, Jesus, and stay with me on this. Jesus, who had the life of God within him, had no experience with sin in his flesh whatsoever. And that's why the virgin birth is so important. Because it bypassed the spiritual death that passed on all men because of Adam's sin. Now, we don't know what the devil had to see or recognize about Jesus, but there was something different about it. Because he was not bound by spiritual death in any form whatsoever. So if Jesus was cut off from the land of the living, and he made his grave with the rich in his deaths, then that means Jesus had to die spiritually. Now, I know some people get bent out of shape about that because they don't like to think that there was ever a point in time where Jesus lost his righteousness. But folks, if Jesus did not die spiritually, and the payment for spiritual death, which came as a result of Adam's sin and passed upon all men, if Jesus didn't pay that price by becoming or by dying spiritually himself, then there's still a price to be paid. See, somebody had to die. And I'm not talking physical death. The physical death was the easiest part of this thing for Jesus. Jesus wasn't withdrawing 
or pulling back on the, in the, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't pulling back because of the physical part of it. Jesus suffered less on the cross than the other two thieves that were cru- crucified on his right and his left. He died quicker, which would mean lesser, shorter, at least shorter amount of time suffering. He's not pulling back from the physical part of it. He's pulling back from the spiritual part of it. He doesn't want to be separated from his father. And he knows the torment. He knows the awful price, the, the judgment that he has to accept upon himself in order for the price to be paid. See, if somebody today died without knowing the Lord, then they would pay the price for their own sins and the torment of their own sins and their own refusal to accept Jesus would be ever before them. But Jesus didn't pay one man's price. He paid every man's price. That's why in the 87th or 88th Psalm, it talks about some of the awful anguish uh, that uh, most people ascribe to Jonah in the belly of the fish. But there are things that the Psalm identifies that clearly have to refer to Jesus. And it talks about the waves of God's judgment breaking over him. Time after time after time after time. He didn't just exist somewhere for three days. He suffered wave after wave after wave of the punishment and the judgment of God. And God couldn't let up. God couldn't say, well, we'll take it easy on you, Jesus. Because then God would not be just. If he said price, the price for sin was death. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death in Romans chapter 3. We all know that. Then that means Jesus had to pay the price and God couldn't cut any corners. That's what Jesus is pulling back from. That's what's causing him to sweat blood in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus made his grave with the wicked and was with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. You see that phrase? He has put him to grief. This is the word sickness again. It literally says in the original Hebrew, it literally says, and a lot of translations will point this out, Jesus was made sickness. Other translations says, say it this way, God made him sick. Well, it doesn't mean that he took cancer on him. It doesn't mean that on the cross he came down with leprosy or leukemia or something like that. It means God laid on Jesus the sickness that was a part of the curse that came on the world through spiritual death or through Adam's sin and the spiritual death that bound man. It says God made him to be sickness. Now the parallel to that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Are you familiar with that? Do you need to look at it or do you know what it says? Well, let me quote it, and maybe you'll remember. It says, For he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, In the same way that we were made righteous, Jesus had to be made sin. Well, we're not saying Jesus was a sinner. He never committed sin. But as our substitute, he had to be made sin. Now, when Adam was made sin, what happened to him? He died spiritually. So when Jesus was made to be sin at God's, on God's behalf, 
as our substitute to fulfill the plan of redemption. What does that mean? That means Jesus had to die spiritually. So you've got an Old Testament account where God placed on Jesus sickness, the sickness of us all. And you've got a New Testament account where Jesus was made sin for the righteousness of us all. Jesus was just as surely made sick as he was made sin. Again, we're not talking about individual sin. We're not talking about individual sickness. We're talking about the price and the penalty, the punishment for all of mankind to be free of sin and sickness and disease. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He's made him sick. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It simply says when Jesus pays the price, then the church will be born and the family of God will come into being. And it was. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, hit the wrong button. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see the word bear in the present tense in verse 11? And past tense in verse 12. You see that word bear? In verse, uh, uh, the previous verse, it's bear, B-E-A-R. And in the next verse, it's bear, B-A-R-E. They're both priesthood terms. It's the same terminology that's used, the same wording that's used. For when the scapegoat bore the sins of the people away and and was cut off from the land of the living, It's the same word bear that's spoken of when it tells us about the sacrificial lamb through the shedding of its blood and the application to the altar in the Holy of Holies, the presentation of the blood before God. It's the same word that that, um, speaks of substitutionary work. So when it says he bare our transgressions and he bare our iniquities, it means he carried them away once and for all. Once and for all. See, the woman in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, she didn't have to believe any of that. She just had to believe that Jesus could heal her if he would. And so she makes her case in faith, and he does. But for us, our faith is not in what God will do. Our faith is in what the word reveals that he has done. And to believe that report or have faith in that report causes the armor of the Lord, the power of God, the healing power of God to be received and manifest. I love the story of the woman with the issue of blood because nothing was sufficient to talk her out of what belonged to her. And Jesus crossed the line, the timeline, between ministering to the Jews and ministering to the Gentiles. God never was trying to hold anything back. 
it was just designated to be used and appropriately used for the Jews before the Gentiles. But she changed God's time clock. She refused to have less than what she knew she could have. And she refused to be talked out of it even by Jesus himself. I can't imagine the smile that was on Jesus' face when he said, for this saying, your daughter is made whole. I can't imagine, or I can only imagine, the pleasure that it brought Jesus to find somebody that was willing to believe the best about God and what Jesus would do because of God's character and God's goodness and God's mercy. And then I remember that God never changes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he has the same attitude toward you and me when we refuse to be talked out of God's best. Anything less is displeasing to our Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us that Jesus specifically and definitely and purposefully bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. His blood was offered one time as an eternal sacrifice. And through his substitutionary work of bearing away spiritual death, poverty, and sickness, by his stripes, we are healed. We're not going to be someday. We are healed now. Peter, looking back to the work, says that by his stripes we were healed. Father, we thank you that your goodness and your kindness and your mercy is that which brought the healing power of God to the earth to begin with. You've never withheld from anyone who reached out to you according to the word, who reached out to you in faith. And no matter what the devil tries to do, no matter what the devil tries to tell us, we choose from this point forward to refuse to be talked out of what Jesus did for us. Therefore, we declare that by the stripes of Jesus, we are healed. If we were healed when he went to the cross, we are healed now. No matter what it looks like, no matter what the circumstances are in our flesh, no matter what symptoms may exist and even persist, we declare that through the work of Jesus, our Savior, and by his stripes, we are healed. Oh, Father, it's so good to be healed. Thank you that we can take it in simple faith just because Jesus bore it for us, just because he carried it away. What he carried, we need not carry. What he bore, we need not bear. So we confess from our hearts, no matter what it looks like and no matter how it feels, we confess that we are the healed of God. Thank you, Lord, for making it so. Thank you for bringing it into physical reality. We know it's a spiritual reality, and it exists in the unseen realm even now. And now we rest in you, trusting in you to bring it into physical reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We need to be like the Syrophoenician woman. Don't let anything talk you out of what the Bible says is yours. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.